Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast. I am your host, Michael Shields. Across the Margin is a proud member of the Osiris Media Group. Check out all their offerings at osirispod.com. In this episode, I present to you an interview with Elijah Anderson, the Sterling Professor of Sociology and of African American Studies at Yale University. Anderson is one of the leading urban ethnographers in the United States, and his publications include Code of the Street, Decency, Violence, and the Moral Life of the Inner City, which came out in 1999. Streetwise, Race, Class, and Change in an Urban Community, which came out in 1990. And the classic sociological work, A Place on the Corner, which came out in 1978. He also wrote The Cosmopolitan Canopy, Race and Civility in Everyday Life. And his latest book, which is the subject of this episode, is Black in White Space which sheds fresh light on the dire persistence of racial discrimination in the United States. A bird stroller in Central Park, a college student lounging on a university quad, two men sitting in a coffee shop, perfectly ordinary actions in ordinary settings, and yet they sparked jarring and inflammatory responses that involved the police and attracted national media coverage. Why? In essence, Elijah Anderson would argue because these were black people existing in white spaces. In Black and White Space, Anderson brings his immense knowledge and ethnography to bear in this time study of racial barriers that are still firmly entrenched in our society at every class level. He focuses on symbolic racism, a new form of racism in America caused by the stubbornly powerful stereotype of the ghetto embedded in the white imagination, which subconsciously connects all black people with crime and poverty, regardless of their social or economic position. From Philadelphia street corner conversations to Anderson's own morning jogs through a Cape Cod vacation town, he probes a wealth of experiences to shed new light on how symbolic racism makes all black people uniquely vulnerable to implicit bias in police stops and racial discrimination in our country. Throughout this episode, Elijah and I discuss how black and white space is part of a larger and critically important body of work. We define and explore the role of ethnographers in social science while breaking down the idea of symbolic racism and the ghetto as a symbol and a mental space. We discuss places that Elijah defines as cosmopolitan canopies and so much more. I have no doubt you're going to really enjoy and learn a lot from this interview with Elijah Anderson. So thank you again. I really, really do um, appreciate your time. And I, I really, really enjoyed when we had, you know, our pre-interview discussion. We, you know, you kind of laid out how this book, which is just so excellent and, and just, just so, such a truth-telling type of book, but um, how it's kind of the, it's, it's part of a larger work in essence and how it has persisted over 40 years for you and how, you know, I just think it's a really good way to commence here um, by hearing you discuss how your previous work has kind of fed into black in a, in a white space and 
and kind of, um, you know, what this book focuses on in relation to the larger body. I think that's a good place to start. Well, I mean, I, I uh, started uh, doing ethnography when I was a graduate student at the University of Chicago. And I worked with uh, uh, Gerald Suttles, who was a major figure in sociology at the time, uh, urban sociologist. And um, he was my mentor. And I went out into the field. I did work at, uh, uh, I looked for a bar, a liquor store. I wanted to, to study that. I thought I really needed to uh, bring in to the discussion the, the real um, lived experience of Black people as I knew it. And I felt I could do this by visiting uh, this bar and liquor store uh, on the south side of Chicago. And I, I looked around at first and found uh, a number of possibilities. And then I found this one particular place uh, that I called Jellies in the book. And I, I did field work. I wrote lots of field notes. I spent time with people. I, I interviewed people. I got to know people. Um, I cut my teeth uh, on that, that place, I mean, doing ethnography. And with ethnography, the assumption is that uh, the people that you study have a, um, a local culture where they have local knowledge. And they develop this local knowledge by going about meeting the demands of everyday life. There are little problems that they solve and deal with. And they learn things and they pass these things along to people they care about, their friends, their family, and especially their children, because they don't want them to have to go and reinvent the wheel and run the risk of being, being hurt or whatever, you know, kind of thing. And so this local knowledge that they develop uh, gets manifested in various uh, myths and rituals and ultimately the social structure of the community, you see. And uh, these are the norms, the values, the rules of everyday life in that community. And the ethnographer, um, for his part or her part, I mean, the idea is to apprehend, to comprehend, maybe to understand this local knowledge, but ultimately to represent it, uh, uh, to kind of paint a picture of it, you know, and, 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 and to render it on a canvas of a sort, which is a book, an article, or whatever. And you make it available to people who've never seen this, never been there. And these are other social scientists principally, but it's for the general public too. Uh, and the thinking is that if we could just tell the truth about these settings and render them, then people who want to do more systematic work or whatever would have some basis for going forward. And they would go forward from a truthful base now, this is the whole idea here with ethnography, you see. Ethnography is defined as the systematic study of culture, of people doing things together. And this local knowledge is what we try to render, you see. And um, you know, other people may not uh, uh, agree with the local knowledge that you represent, you know, or that the people themselves live by. But to them, it's the one true thing. It's what they know mm -hmm. and, and how they live. And this is what I tried to do in that study of Jelly's Place on the Corner, my first book, my dissertation. And um, uh, it, um, you know, become a, it's become a, a classic in the field mm -hmm. because it does you know, render that situation in a way that uh, other scholars um, um, can relate to, can understand, or whatever. Yeah. It's amazing the hands-on nature of your work. I mean, what 
you do, it seems so often is to really get out there and talk to the people in the community in different communities. And that is really um, a crux of the way you, you do your research and, and, and find your, these, these really uh, important findings. That's correct, right? Yeah, well, that's true. And again, I had, I had good role models. I had good teachers at, mm-hmm. at the University of Chicago. As I say, there was Joe Suttles. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then at Northwestern University, there was Howard Becker. And both of these individuals were major figures in the field. Yeah. And uh, they taught me and I learned from them. And I mean, the craft of uh, fieldwork, uh, qualitative fieldwork, ethnography, and uh, this is where I come. And so basically, the, um, uh, that was my first book. Yep. And that led to, um, you know, uh, a job at Swarthmore College. Um, and uh, I was there for two years. And then Penn recruited me, University of Pennsylvania, down in the city of Philadelphia. They recruited me. And I, I left Swarthmore and <clears throat> went to, this, to uh, Penn. And I moved into a neighborhood with... Um, with my uh, uh, girlfriend who became my wife. <laughs> and uh, we, uh, we, we, we lived in Powelton Village there. And, and I began to, I mean, I finished up my, my thesis and my, and my first book, and then I uh, moved right into doing another project. And that project was to study the community in which we lived, which was Powelton Village. And that community was undergoing uh, change a gentrification, as it were. Uh, uh, yuppies were moving in and other people were moving out. And uh, of course, the community had a, had a, had a long and uh, spectacular history of Quakers living there, people who were more liberal and open to various kinds of people. Um, and um, this, this group of white people were mixed with gentrifiers and, and some black people, but across the street, across Spring Garden, was the ghetto, you know, I mean, a very, very poor area called Mantua. And it was uh, side by side with this community. And we lived in Pendleton, and I wanted to understand how people in that community, how well-to-do uh, white people sometimes uh, remained in that community, you know, even though they had options, they, they stayed, you know. And one of the questions was, how did they stay? Why did they stay? Uh, that kind of thing. And the answer was that they become streetwise and familiar with the community in a way that outsiders are not. And so basically they learn to live with that community, within that community and uh, understood how to navigate the spaces and not be frightened all the time by black people or whoever, if you know what I mean. And these people were, were pretty liberal and open and what have you. Anyway, this tale is represented in my second book, Streetwise. And, um, and then after I finished that book and published it, uh, I moved on to a third book and I became very concerned with why so many black kids were killing each other in so many neighborhoods around the, around the country, but especially in Philadelphia, which had a very, very high murder rate. And so I began to investigate this issue going into the community, spending time with fathers and sons and taxi drivers and corner store owners and sometimes policemen, grandmothers. I talked to grandfathers. I talked to anybody who would, you know, spend time with me. And um, it's not just a matter of interviewing people here, although that's important. Mm -hmm. What you do when you do ethnography is you try to represent, you try to paint a picture 
uh, based on your observations, you see. And then that's what I did in this book, uh, Streetwise, and that's what I did in Code of the Street, which became a major, major uh, theory, basically. And it changed uh, sociology. Uh, it changed uh, criminology in some ways because people have forever been concerned with why people commit violence, what drives them to the violence, especially people who are segregated in these communities and what, what, what to make of it all. So there's a sense in which uh, Code of the Street makes sense of this mm-hmm. in a way that policymakers and sociologists can understand in a way that they hadn't been able to understand before. So yeah. the book became uh, uh, a really good seller Mm-hmm. And it spoke to the issues that uh, so many black people are dealing with all the time, not just black people, but people in working class communities who uh, have this feeling that, you know, violence is a matter of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And when the state is especially um, weak in the minds of people, street justice fills the void, you see. Yeah. And in so many inner city communities, uh, the police have abdicated their, their responsibilities to the community, mm-hmm. people feel. And so there's not much faith in the police. When you call the police, they may not come. But when they come, they s- sometimes abuse the people who call them. And so, uh, you know, a lot of people have no faith in the police, very limited faith, faith in the police. They feel they must be their own police force, you see. Mm-hmm. And that necessitates. Uh, street credibility, which means that you uh, can guarantee that there will be retributive violence Mm. for any act against me and my family or my friends or whoever. And to the extent that you can uh, exhibit this or live this or communicate that, then the presumption is that you can can be left alone, you see. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the community, there are two kinds of people. There are people who are decent quote-unquote and these are their words uh-huh. and they're people who are street uh-huh. and the decent people and i figured that most people in the community are decent and trying to be decent there's a minority that is really into the criminal uh element so to speak yeah and for these people uh basically uh you know there's a there's a sense that you know the way you live your life is about crime and hustling and and getting the best of the next person, if you know what I mean. Yep. The decent people are, are on a on a different plane, and uh, they're under pressure in the community. Mm-hmm. What that means is that uh, they have to uh, act street just to survive, and they have to uh, code switch. You mm-hmm. see, mm-hmm. and there's situations where you can be street. There's situations where you can be decent. Mm-hmm. And the, the decent people, quote unquote, uh, have this uh, uh, exquisite ability sometimes to code switch, mm-hmm. you see, yeah. and to let yeah. people know in no uncertain terms that I'm not that person to be robbed. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to call the cops. I'm going to deal with you myself. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that a person can be believed, especially young people, then, you know, they can be left alone. But the street credibility it's high maintenance. Yeah. It's high maintenance. You don't get it once and for all. Mm-hmm. You get it and you got to keep on getting it. You see, mm-hmm. you got to keep on getting it and show people you've got it. And so this is one of the things that drives violence, you see, because mm-hmm. you, you get it and keep it. 
by doing violent deeds or standing up to people, you see. And that's what drives the, uh, the violence rates in so many of these communities. Uh, every weekend in the summer, people get killed. Well, part of the reason is that they're dealing with this issue of street credibility, as it were, yep. which is really very important in the community because the police have abdicated, you feel. Yep. There are two different yep. systems of law, one for white people and one for black people. Mm-hmm. And they know, they know that. Now, whether or not that's true objectively, a lot of people believe that, yeah. you see. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and these can be decent, these can be street. Mm-hmm. And again, these are their terms. They're not my terms. Yep. Decent and street. Anyway, that that book came right after Streetwise, mm-hmm. and um, and then after Streetwise, I mean, I mean after Streetwise, the Code of the Street. But then after Code of the Street uh, came, uh, you know, the uh, Cosmopolitan Canopy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll discuss. I'd like to discuss that a little bit too, because that's brought up in uh, Black and a White Space, but. You know, you're, when you're discussing um, uh, streetwise and code of the street, it's it's you know uh, it, it kind of letting people in uh, on on what's happening in that case. What was really interesting in Black and a White Space, and it, it starts immediately in the book, is this is a deeply personal book to you. It's the gaze comes inward a little bit, and you share with us, um, you know, the many experiences you had that shape you, and it, notably, you you walk us uh, through your childhood and discuss how it did shape your view on race. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little, some the, the personal aspect of the book and, and you know, what, what you learned at an early age, um, you know, uh, about being black in a white space. Yeah, well, as I mentioned, I was born in what used to be, uh, you know, uh, uh, on what used to be a plantation in the South, mm-hmm. you know, in the Delta, Mississippi Delta. And my folks were, part of a sharecropping family. My grandmother was the midwife when I was born. Um, basically, my mother had uh, uh, three other children when I was born. And, uh, uh, you know, she uh, was 20 years old when I was born. Mm. So she started early, but my grandmother was the midwife and she was kind of a village doctor in that <clears throat> community, as it were. And um, uh, she was very religious and she was uh, considered to be a person with uh, mother wit or this kind of innate knowledge about people and things you know she knew things and she would share this with people and she was a leader of her community and uh, as I said she uh, she birthed babies she gave people support she cared for people she uh, was kind of a village doctor who never took money you know Amazing. she was not educated but she had all these herbical cures for this and that, whatever. Mm-hmm. This is how she. This is how she lived. Now, my folks uh, during the war. Um, my dad was in the war. He went to. He went to um, to France. He went to uh, 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 to uh, England. He fought in the war like many black uh, soldiers did, mm-hmm. and he was treated well over there by the townspeople, the the white people over there. When he got back to this country, he felt he could no longer live in the South, you know, mm. because he, he had tasted freedom and tasted uh, respect. And uh, I guess the North beckoned, the North beckoned mm. to him yep. because of the factory work and that kind of thing. And so my uncles were already there. And he, um, he uh, took me and my mother and we made our way to South Bend. We stayed at my uncle's house for a while. Yep. yep. 
Mm-hmm. He got a job at Studebaker's. He worked there, and I grew up right there in that little situation, basically. And eventually, I lived in a in a black community, um, you know, uh, and kind of, you know, it was a it was a it was a it was a kind of a ghetto area in a sense. And I went to a school that was predominantly white, you know, mm-hmm. uh, based on gerrymandering, <clears throat> the way they cut up the districts, and we were the last black kids to uh, be included in, <clears throat> in this white district. Mm-hmm. So I went to that, uh, that kind of an integrated school and eventually then moved to another side of town where it was an integrated neighborhood, but the school ironically was, was, was all black that I went to. Mm-hmm. So I went from the second grade on to the sixth in a very segregated school. And then after that, I uh, went on to high school, junior high school and, and all. But um, the uh, in, in, in attending junior high uh, downtown South Bend, uh, I was also a kid who, I mean, I, 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 I read at an advanced level early on and um, kids were, uh, I would, they would stand me in front of the class and have me, have me read to the other kids and all that when I was very young. And I think I became marginalized because I was, you know, so uh, so friendly with the teacher, maybe, but whatever. At any rate, um, I became much more interested in the street and in kids who were free and independent, uh, perhaps to deal with my own marginality in some ways. But uh, I was selling newspapers on the streets when I was uh, nine and ten. Uh, downtown South Bend Tribune, and I would stand on corners and sell the newspapers and all that with other kids and compete for corners and that kind of thing. And and ultimately, uh, I began setting pins at the bowling alley. And you know, a lot of the grown men were winos or homeless people, and we kids were in some ways delinquent. We would stay out late at night. We'd make money. We'd hang out. We'd do this and that like kids did. But we just had the run of the streets, you know, as young people. And eventually, uh, setting pins got old. I mean, you get a sprained finger or whatever it is, you know, from setting pins and all that. The money is good and, and it's fun. But I began to uh, canvas the downtown area looking for a real job. And I went to a lot of businesses downtown and finally came across Mr. Forbes. And Mr. Forbes, uh, you know, we had a conversation. He was in his store one night uh, on a Monday night. Mondays, the stores are open till 8.30. And it was, uh, you know, after hours, but we talked. And uh, I said, I asked him, I said, you need some help. And he said, um, what can you do? I said, well, I can do whatever these other boys do. I see them in here. And we went back and forth. And where do you live? And live on the west side where black people live. And, uh, you know, he's, when can you work? I said, I can work after school on Saturdays. I go to the high school down the street. <laughs> In fact, it was a junior high. And the high school was a part of it. But I just said, the high school. And he said, oh. And uh, he said, okay, I, I can start you out at 50 cents an hour. And I said, can you make it 75? And we just went back and forth. And he said, no, I got I to gotta pay you 50 cents an hour. And I said, when can I start? He said, tomorrow. And I shook his hand and he hired me. And that was an amazing thing because this was my first real job. 
you know, with the boss. And this was a, a great thing. But from the time I was 12 until I graduated from high school, I was around his shop, you know, his typewriter store. And I ran errands for Mrs. Forbes. I sometimes go to the bank for him. Uh, I fixed typewriters. I, I swept the sidewalks outside, washed windows, painted, fixed the concrete, burned the trash in the incinerator downstairs, emptied waste baskets, did all those things. And this man became like a father to me in some ways. I mean, he was a great uh, person and uh, I'm sure he cared for me. But what I found out was that he cared for me most when I was in my place kind of thing. I mean, one day he, uh, uh, well, the, he hired a young, a young white fellow and uh, a couple of years younger than me. And this fellow became a good friend of mine. And we would hang out together and do a lot of things together and spend time together. And, and one day this uh, young fellow came to me and said, guess what Forbes told me? I said, what? He said, uh, I should not hang out with the colored boys so much. And I said, no, he didn't say that. You know, we went back and forth on that. But that was, that was provocative to me and made me think about Mr. Forbes and about him and, you know, his, uh, his world and my world and that kind of thing. And I began to watch him more closely. And I began to watch things going on in the, in the store more closely. And I, 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 I learned uh, over, over time that, yeah, maybe he could have said this. Maybe he did say this. But there were things that were happening that made me think this, you see. I mean, once his wife was, uh, I mean, we had a fire in the store one time. And, you know, and the next day we were cleaning up and all that. And she worked very hard. And we all worked very hard cleaning up and that kind of thing. And then she was on the telephone with one of her friends. And. And she told a friend, she said, well, you know, I worked so hard getting this place back together. You know, I worked like a nigger. <laughs> and we boys uh, just like our ears perked up because we never heard somebody actually say nigger like this in the store. And, uh, you know, and we all took it in. And then a couple of days later, one of the boys was, was uh, working, uh, doing something in her apartment changing a light bulb or something. And, and she apologized to him. She said that, uh, sorry, I said that. I didn't, I didn't mean, it, mean you. And mm. he said, oh, Mrs. Forbes, don't worry about that. You know, I know that you're intelligent, you're educated. Mm. And I know you weren't talking about me. You know, it must have been a slip up. <laughs> mm. Mm. You know, and she, she just uh, kind of excused herself. And, you know, but this was the context in which I was, operating yeah. you know, these things would happen and um you know you could i mean from these little incidents uh, you, you you learn that you're that you're black mm. and that 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 means something and i was coming of age mm -hmm. and the civil rights movement was going on and um during this time we could we could sort of uh, watch the tv and see things happening down south in various places people marching and demonstrating and all that and and Mr. Forbes would sometimes make fun of these people, uh -huh. you know. And uh, when Luizo uh, was killed in, in Selma, this is a woman from Detroit, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She was killed. Uh, I mean, the talk around the store was it was all her fault. Yeah. What was she doing there? Uh -huh. You know, she should have been minding her own business, that kind of thing. 
And comments like this just 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 made us all think about, you know, race and and whose side were we on and this kind of thing. And so with comments like that just made us all aware that that I mean it was kind of a big change. Yeah, this was uh, you could you could really see a lot of the roots um you know in 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 that section of the book and, and just as you were describing uh in that store kind of the roots of a lot of the um ethnography that that became your larger work i mean it was really the ground floor there and just the differences of experiences and that just it just really comes up um throughout your book i there's this one thing I really want to get into um, that's that's just it feels like it's really at the heart of black and a white space. And it's this idea of the ghetto as a symbol, not just as a place um, where it it the symbolic ghetto is something that that sticks with or um, kind of is carried throughout uh, the lives of, of, of black people in America. Um, and I would love to hear you talk about this cornerstone idea in the book. Um, how, you know, uh, 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 the ghetto, a place could become a mental space uh, or a symbol, um, you know, because symbolic racism is definitely something that's explored in a major, major way. And it was really eye-opening, um, and, you know, as you got dug into it throughout the book. Yeah, well, the iconic ghetto was probably one of the most important concepts of the book. Absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it, it really is rooted in slavery. You know, I mean, slavery established uh, black people at the bottom of the order in the minds of white people, of course. And after uh, slaves were emancipated, I mean, they they uh, migrated uh, to cities of the of the south and of the north and you know, villages and what have you. And um, oftentimes, the white people in these towns and villages said, "Keep going, keep on going." And uh, and black people did keep on going until they until they stopped at certain places and they lived outside of town and there was a kind of a symbiotic relationship between these settlements and the white community and all and um, but basically the the areas they settled in became the place where the black folk lived you see and this was the beginning of the of the ghetto so to speak the beginning of that, uh, that 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 place that so many people have so many misgivings about, you know, today. I mean, the symbol of it. I mean, goes back, you know. And I think that that symbol of this place over time reinforces what slavery established, and that is the the black person's place, quote unquote, in the minds of many white people, at the bottom of the order. You see. And um, I, 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 at least the, the, the ghetto as it stands uh, reinforces this, this principle of white over black, you see. I mean, just as Taney said in 1857 that, that black people had no rights that white people were bound to respect, you know. And uh, he was uh, arguing uh, for the Dred Scott decision, as it were, yeah. over that. But basically, he was commenting about the the status of black people uh, all over the all over the, all over the country, in a sense. And this was before slaves were emancipated, and uh, 1857. But um, but there's a sense in which the iconic ghetto, or this or this place where the black folk live, reinforces this this the status reinforces this this place in the minds of a lot of 
a lot of people, a lot of white people, you see. And this principle of white over black, uh, you, can, you can feel it and see it in that relationship, as it were. And so many white people became socially invested in this positionality, so to speak. And it was passed on from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. Mm -hmm. And so today we have these ghettos all over the country. And you know, these are these are places where a lot of people think the black folk live, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And it, it 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 does that work of reinforcing what's what slavery established, I would argue. Yeah. You know, that 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 positional. Uh, situation of black people vis-a-vis -vis white people in the minds of many people. So this is what went on, you know. But uh, at the same time, at the same time, I mean, over time, we've had a, a lot of social movement, mm -hmm. you know. We've had, of course, World War One, World War Two. We've had, you know, the great migration of black people to cities. Mm -hmm. We've had the civil rights movement, you see, mm -hmm. which culminated in riots all over the country. And then we have had the, um, the racial incorporation process, which was basically to deal with a lot of the tensions and the riots that were going on, but also the social movement for full status for Black people, you know. And so all this was going on. And, of course, affirmative action and all kinds of policies that were supposed to set things straight. I mean, civil rights laws were passed, you know, voting rights, all kinds of things were passed to make black people full citizens, as it were, you know. So uh, the result of all this is the largest black middle class in American history right now. You know, and that, that it, it's, and black people uh, are not just in the ghetto anymore. They're all over the place. They're in middle, middle class society. They, they, they live in formerly white neighborhoods. They, they, they go to, you know, schools, uh, universities, uh, various places where they're, they meet white people and all, and they have a sense of equality. But because of the icon itself, I mean, the power of the icon, you know, black people move about with this deficit of credibility, you see, and um, in, in the minds of a lot of people, and that has to be negotiated before they can, you know, get beyond that, uh, that uh, deficit, which is a big point of the book itself. Absolutely. That that phrase deficit of credibility just came to mind many times. And you speak to how, um, you know, class plays into the symbolic ghetto. And then it's, you know, it, the stature often doesn't doesn't matter, as you were just alluding to. It's 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 something that has to has to be worked through um, the entire time. It's really, really wild. I was um, curious if you could speak about cosmopolitan canopies a little bit as you it is explored a bunch. And um, I often think of you know, and I'm sure you'll talk about what exactly that is, but I often think about these places that you define as cosmopolitan um, canopies as, as places that could be looked at as idyllic. Um, but it's clear in your book that, that they can be looked at differently by different people. And I was wondering if we could kind of talk about or hear you talk about, you know, what they are and how they could be viewed differently, whether um, as I was alluding to, potentially idyllic or, um, you know, or as, uh, as problematic in certain ways. Well, as I was, as I was winding up my book, uh, Code of the Street, uh -huh. uh, we had some incidents in my neighborhood uh, in, in West Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And my neighbor had been, um, been robbed at gunpoint uh, 
he's a white man. He was um, uh, he worked for the New Jersey Network News, and he was at the uh, West Coast video one night and walked home. And uh, two young boys stuck him up, put a gun to his head, and demanded his money. And he got he got home, and he told his wife, "It's time to go," you know, and to let him go. And uh, he said, "It's time to go," and they moved. They moved away. And I say that because it wasn't just him, but there were a lot of people in my so-called gentrifying neighborhood um, who were uh, disturbed by all the violence and the, and the crime going on. And this was the time of uh, crack cocaine, and uh, things were really, um, you know, dangerous on the streets in these communities. And that was very important. So, so what, uh, you know, we did, I mean, in dealing with all this, I mean, we moved, we moved uh, to Center City, Philadelphia, uh, to Rittenhouse Square, and I was finishing up a code of the street during that time, the book. Um, but we moved to this uh, this uh, apartment building that was basically all white, you know, right on the uh, Rittenhouse Square, which is Philadelphia's premier block. And um, when I went, <laughs> move-in day was interesting because he had black uh, people moving in and some white people just don't know what to do about this. And especially a black male like me, uh, you know, going up the elevator up to the 20th floor. I mean, mm-hmm. some of the people were kind of disturbed by that, you know, until they got to know me, mm-hmm. you know, uh, which is very important here because uh, the symbolic racism uh, works just that way. Uh, at first, the person may be assumed to be from the ghetto and have all these demerits in the minds of the white people who might meet him, so to speak, or mm-hmm. her. Mm-hmm. And then uh, basically, as the person gets to know the person, these deficits may go by the wayside, and then the, the white person can be more relaxed mm-hmm. and more relaxed. And pretty soon, uh, there's no uh, serious issue in the way that there was, if you will. Yeah. And uh, for example, a lot of the old women in the building, uh, blue-haired ladies who would get upset with me coming in the building, they got to know me, uh, that I was a professor, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. And uh, each morning I would jog around the square and, and down to Penn and back. And, uh, and sometimes I'd walk around the square with some of these women and talk, <laughs> you know. So they got to know me, you see. And, uh, and they got to somehow get, get beyond their stereotypes, you see. And that's how symbolic racism works. I mean... Uh, initially, people have that feeling that this person is from the hood or whatever, and with all the stereotypes and what have you. And then they find that, well, no, he's, he's not so bad, you know, kind of thing. And they begin to take away, subtract certain negatives, and pretty soon they've got, you know, uh, 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 maybe a holistic picture of the person, and then a lot of things might then go by the way. So when it's going to happen with me, getting to know this new space and what have you, and I began to kind of focus on that. I began to see that, if you will. So I finished up my book and uh, began to take field notes. Um, uh, When you're an ethnographer, you just watch things and write things and Mm -hmm. maybe take pictures and observe, and you don't know what you're going to do with it. You just do this, you know. And so I was building uh, a diary and uh, writing field notes and all. And when I finished the 
the code of the street, I had another project all set. Mm-hmm. And I began to kind of move into that, you see. Mm-hmm. And uh, I began to see the Rittenhouse Square uh, as a cosmopolitan canopy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, the, the, the big trees, uh, it's Philadelphia's premier park. Diverse. And there are all kinds of people there. I mean, you got homeless people, you got older people, you've got uh, young couples, you've got uh, people, uh, business people, secretaries, black people, uh, homeless people, uh, all kinds of people using that space and essentially getting along. It's really a space of convergence, cultural convergence, you see. And, um, and people basically are civil to one another. And it's and 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 civility is a is a is a is a real theme there, and the uh, you look up and the trees that um, tower over the square, uh, they're like a natural canopy, and and I begin to think about canopy, and I begin to think about how diverse it was and how uh, tolerant people were essentially, and I be, and I came up with this this notion uh, cosmopolitan canopy, mm-hmm. you see. Mm-hmm. And that's what I called it. And my wife and I, we would go to Rittenhouse Square and walk around, do things. And the restaurants all around the square, we we enjoyed that very much. Uh, we'd do our constitutional each evening, and that was all very nice. And on weekends, we would go to uh, the Reading Terminal Market, which was uh, a few blocks away. And it, too, was like a, like a canopy, in a sense, diverse. Mm-hmm. All kinds of people there, uh, working class folk, uh, middle class folk, uh, whites, blacks, Asians, um, you know, Muslims. I mean, all kinds of people were there, uh, Latinos, uh, and essentially getting on together, you know. And it's just a wonderful thing to see. But I began to dub this place a kind of canopy as well. And I began to sort of uh, work on the concept of canopy. And, uh, you know, I began to interview people and talk to people. And uh, in that setting, you have working class folk, you have middle class folk, you have, uh, you have people who are from, um, you know, um, particularistic parochial environments. You have people who are well-to-do, educated. Uh, they're all sharing the space, you know, black people, white people, and getting on together, essentially. Not necessarily loving each other, but basically giving one another their space and uh, and being civil. Mm. And so this, uh, this struck me, and I wrote about it. And I, I I basically dubbed it this 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 island of racial civility located in a sea of segregation. Yeah, but Philadelphia is one of the most segregated cities in the country. Yeah, uh, six months segre- segregated. Uh, place in the country they say honestly surprised to read that when i saw that it was the six most segregated absolutely it's crazy and then you have all these 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 you have these canopies uh where different kinds of people come together and 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 interact nicely across mm-hmm. across racial lines you see yeah it's 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 interesting yeah, and that's kind of you know the way you describe it is kind of why i kind of think of those spaces as idyllic in some ways but i mean I find I think that many people would find it interesting how so many uh, white people um, can and do just avoid black spaces. Um, But black people uh, are required um, for many reasons, uh, social rewards of such uh, to navigate 
uh, white spaces. And I was wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, how, um, you know, while white people who choose to do so can just flat out um, avoid these black spaces, that isn't a, a luxury to, to choose a word there um, that black people have to avoid these white spaces. And so there's an adaption or, um, you know, a, a process of, of, you know, finding ways to, to deal with this. But I, I would love to hear you talk about that a little bit, how it's, how it's not well, something that people can just, um, just, just avoid. Well, there are, there are uh, black spaces that white people sometimes uh, go into, so to speak, and navigate. Um, I think of jazz clubs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think of um, certain communities, and there's certain kinds of white people who are. Uh, Irving Goffman, the great sociologist, talked about them as wise mm -hmm. people who uh, may be white, but they they can empathize with the the um, situation, maybe the plight of black people. Yeah. They can they can put themselves in their place, and there are people like that. But it's a, it's a minority of white people, so to speak. Uh -huh. Typically. Uh, uh, white people avoid black space wow. and black people must navigate the white space as a condition of their existence wow. in part because the white spaces are places where the jobs are, it's where you get educated, it's where you go for a good night on the town. Uh, you know, I mean, we're living in a, a society that is essentially dominated by white people, wow. you know. Wow. And that's important because in the white space, uh, white people typically have a have an implicit power that black people don't enjoy. Uh, and black people know this, they know this. Many white people don't always appreciate it, but this is this is the way it the way it rolls. I will say about the canopy, going back to the canopy. Please, please. I mean, the canopy is a beautiful place uh -huh. socially, as I say, all kinds of people yeah. there. Uh, but it also has fault lines, you see. Yeah. And it's it, it's comprised of of people, at least people I've gotten to know as cosmopolitan, but there are also ethnocentrics there, you see. Mm -hmm. and, and the cosmos, they like everybody, and, and that's what they present, you yeah. know. And the ethnocentrics, uh, I mean, you're not even a person unless you look like me, <laughs> that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so they, they, and sometimes these two orientations operate in the same person. And uh, because the cosmopolitans dominate the canopies, the people who are ethnocentric know that basically they have to keep their ethnocentrism in check, you see. Mm -hmm. and, and they do, they do. Yeah. They, 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 they come from sometimes quite parochial environments, you know, where they truly haven't seen that many black people, mm -hmm. where they haven't seen uh, gay people, they haven't seen uh, Asian people, they haven't seen Latinos, you know. Mm -hmm. So when they see such a person, they sometimes gawk, you know, or they look, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so this is a part of it, part of it too. Uh, and they keep their ethnocentrism in check mm -hmm. as long as they can. And there comes a point sometimes when they've just had enough. They just have had enough and it, it, it kind of comes out, you know. <laughs> That, that they are disturbed by the appearance of these people who are so different from them. And they, they let them know somehow, you know, and they might insult them. They may talk about them in some way to their friends who are more ethnocentric and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. and, 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 and the person hearing this, who may be marginal in some sense, 
and, and and typically it is a black person, but it also can be it can be a woman, it can be a gay person, it can be a, a Jewish person, it can be a Muslim. You know, people who may be marginal in that situation, but they can hear this and they have and they become disturbed by it, and they have this moment of acute disrespect, so to speak. And and that moment of acute disrespect can rend can rent the canopy, you see. And that's what happens on occasion. The canopy does get rented on occasion. You know, it, 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 it may even uh, be close to collapse, you know. But typically, before it collapses, it, it, it reorients itself and sort of gushes out the gloss, the social gloss, so that they can kind of get on with things, you know. The social gloss is like a soul-searching moment where they have to kind of figure out what happened, you know. And, and I say that because, uh, you know, this is part of the, the, I mean, the canopy is a beautiful place until it's not, until you have this moment of acute disrespect that somebody feels. And Black people get this a lot because of what I write about in the Black and white space, you see. But anybody can get it, you know. Yep. And, and, and I introduced the, the concept of the iconic ghetto in, uh, in the book, The Cosmopolitan Canopy, because when Black people come to the canopy, mm -hmm. a lot of people assume, and they could be wrong, but they assume that these people come from the iconic ghetto, you see? Yeah, yeah. And, and so these people can get, can get this, 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 this acute disrespect more so than some others, if you will, but anybody can get this moment of acute disrespect. The issue for Black people is that the, the iconic ghetto is so close in the minds of people who would relegate black people to it. If you follow me, yeah, absolutely. And this is all in the book. This is all oh, laid yeah. out in the book. Absolutely, the cosmopolitan yeah. canopy. But it's taken up in the in the new book uh, as a way to sort of understand this symbolic racism that I talk about. You see, definitely. There's so many stories. You really personalize it, not just to you, but I mean, there's the story of KR and just all these different different uh, real life examples of of um, you know, uh, unique and different and, 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 and hard at sometimes uh, experiences that people, uh, black people have navigating white spaces. And I you know, got to thinking, I mean, uh, do you feel just kind of to kind of put a bow on this and just, just kind of, uh, I'd love to kind of get your thoughts uh, a little bit moving forward. Do you feel that, that being educated, if, if people were to read your series of books to learn more about uh, what Black people go through in white spaces um, by being around different people, uh, experiencing ideal cos you know, cosmopolitan canopies, excuse me. Um, do, you, do you feel that education and empathy and understanding of things, these concepts that, that you, you know, ethnography and, and that you lay out so plainly and wonderfully, do you feel that education and understanding that can lead to us having uh, different experiences together in, in spaces that are viewed, um, you know, more uh, open to all people? Is there, is education and learning these ideas something that, that can help us, help us all live together a little bit better? I would have to say, yes, yes, I believe that. I believe to the extent that people know about, you know, these things or are educated about them, then we have a chance then of people coming together in a different way, you know. Um, for example, this moment of acute disrespect is very powerful. 
and 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 black people uh, call it, you know, I mean the the N word moment, you mm -hmm. know, and mm -hmm. they, they they talk about it among themselves. They don't always share this with white people, you know, but when they've had a a, a N moment, you know, they 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 share with one another, mm -hmm. and the N moment is the moment of acute disrespect based on one's blackness, you know. Yeah, and these can be small or they can be large. The small ones black people get from time to time, these are subtle things and like slights or whatever, you know, that you, you just put up with every day, you know, and, and it can be uh, something as deceptively simple as being seated by the bathroom in a, in, a, in a restaurant or seated by the kitchen when there are better seats available kind of thing. And you say, well, what about that seat by the window? And the waitress says, well, that, that's, that's reserved, you know. So you take the one by the toilet and you sit there all evening and that seat by the window never gets filled. And I say this because this isn't like a, a, a one-time thing. Uh, this happens to black people all the time, you see. And so they understand what it means to be black in these environments, you see, or what they have to go through, you see. It's like the black tax that they have to pay just to be black in the society and you just put up with it you become accustomed to it mm -hmm. and you don't get upset every time you get this ill treatment you just kind of deal with it and keep going you know yeah. but 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 that's for the the small moments the big moments can really disturb you yeah. the big moments uh, can get you killed you know i mean the big moments can can make you lose your job the big moments can deny you a house in a neighborhood where you thought you qualified for, you know, that kind of thing, or to be able to rent a place where you thought you qualified for, or to get a job that you thought you were qualified for, you know. And this is part of the black tax, but this is the 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 big moments, you see. Mm -hmm. And these big moments are hard to deal with. The big moments can be so humiliating, and they can also just basically, I mean, they can be traumatic. You know, you have to kind of heal once you have one of these big moments because, you know, so much of life today is about the canopy. Mm -hmm. See, the canopy is a is a metaphor for civil society. You know, it's like it's the world that our ministers, our priests, our our our, our school teachers, our coaches. Um, I mean, it's it's civil society, mm -hmm. and basically, we have learned that people will judge you not by the color of your skin, but by the content of your character. And that's what you hope for, you know, oh. that's what you hope for. And that's what, that's what the canopy is like, supposedly. Mm -hmm. But when you get treated, when you get mistreated and you feel as though you've been fundamentally disrespected, I mean, and you just, you just have to go through some changes. You have to process it, you know? And so the big ones, uh, they, they can put something on your mind and make you, you know, just sit back and wonder, like, what, what did I do? <laughs> you know, what, what, what happened here? Mm -hmm. And sometimes, uh, you know, you, you, you invest in people and they let you down, you know, and you have to think, well, what did I do? And, and the question is, where do I stand? You see, mm -hmm. and that's the big question that comes about when black people have this, this, this inward moment, the big ones, if you know what I mean, you have to go, you have to be, go back and think about what went on, you know, as I say, you can get fired from a job. Mm -hmm. You can get, uh, you know, stopped by the police in this, in this white area. 
trumped up charges, you know. And and you and then you go back and you tell your you tell your wife, you tell your your husband about you know your end moment, you know, and uh, you tell her the story, you tell him the story, and you might tell your friends, and you know you talk about it because you're trying to process, you're trying to heal, you see, mm-hmm. and you mm-hmm. talk about this moment. It could be at work, you know, you walked up on guys at work and they're telling racist jokes mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and you didn't realize they were like that you see yeah. but then you just say whoa and you have to do some processing if you know what I mean and you tell your friends and you work it through and you and pretty soon if it's bad enough I mean you 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 talk to your white friends about it you know and and, and, and they say well he's a jerk you know kind of thing or and you know, and and your black friends say, "Well, well, didn't you know about white people? Didn't you know <laughs> you had an you had an end moment? You know, kind of." So they, the point is, when you have this end moment, you oftentimes go through it alone. You know, yeah. And, and then pretty soon, you you even you, you get on public transportation and you talk to your seatmate about it. You know, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Or you get on the airplane, you may talk to you person next to you tell him about your moment of that kind of thing because you're trying to process you're trying to figure it out like what did i do you know yeah and uh, and this is a kind of therapy and uh it's it, it's traumatic sometimes yeah. but then you begin to heal you see mm. you begin to heal mm. and pretty soon the further you get away from it uh, the the better off you are and at some point you can even begin to joke about it you see yeah. I had my end moment, but you never forget. Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, you culminate. You culminate the the book discussing discussing uh, that moment for you, and and again, it's it's kind of a it's like it, it is. It's such a deeply personal book. You start with your childhood, and end with that that traumatic moment that was that was. So you know, uh, just these these are life altering moments as as you're speaking to. It's I mean, you mentioned the word process. There's, we're all trying to process so much and understand each other and I just I can't get over how well you uh, lay out these things that are happening and, and things that are people are going through black people are going through in America in such an intellectual way and I just I haven't put seen a put um, in and just laid out so plainly and just just it's it's I couldn't recommend this book more reading it to to find ways to understand uh, you know how you know different Americans are 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 living in the same same place in, in different ways and now i know i need to read i'm glad you talked about them early in the interview your other books because i really want to dig in there's so much so much to get into in your book and so I, it's, it was a privilege uh to hear you talk about it and, and for your time here to discuss your book it's a great one and i really thank you for your time yeah Julie. okay
This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at osirispod.com.